Hey everyone, what's up? It's Mike Wong, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Before we get to today's interview, let's start with some news. Earlier this week, NASA retired two of its most venerable spacecraft, the Kepler Space Telescope and the Dawn spacecraft, which visited the asteroids Vesta and Ceres. So I'm not sure if Ceres counts as an asteroid. I guess it does. It's a dwarf planet, as our definition of planethood goes, defined by the International Astronomical Union. I'm going to just check this. Ceres. As a dwarf planet, does it still count as an asteroid? It's a really good question. Hmm, interesting. So Wikipedia, which is, of course... A fairly trusted source for scientific information says that Ceres has been reclassified as a dwarf planet and is therefore no longer considered an asteroid. Interesting. Okay, so Ceres is not an asteroid. Let's get back on track. So I actually have much more to say about Kepler because Kepler played a pretty influential role in my life. I took my first planetary science class the same spring that Kepler launched into space. And I remember my professor showing our class a video of Kepler's launch. And I remember watching it in awe. Not so much of the flaming rocket that was arching into the sky, but more of all the scientists and engineers, the people who were cheering it on so passionately. Some openly in tears. And it was in that moment that I really decided that it crystallized in my mind what kind of career I really wanted to have. I wanted to have a career that dared me to dream big and aim higher, a career that would open my eyes to profound discoveries and make me reckon with my place in this grand evolving universe and also a career that was built upon some of the most majestic, most magnificent technological wonders that humankind has ever built. A career that would occasionally move me to tears. And so I decided to major in planetary science. I wanted to be a part of that community that felt so moved by the launching of a spacecraft. I wanted to be part of the community that helped make that spacecraft happen, and that would use that spacecraft to learn more about our place in the cosmos. That was nine years ago, and since then I've always seen Kepler as my robotic twin in outer space. And so for the past nine years, we've learned about the cosmos together, it in an Earth-trailing orbit, and me in college and graduate school. I think it's fair to say that without Kepler, I don't think I'd be exactly where I am today. And so it's been a really fascinating run. Kepler has discovered thousands of exoplanets for us. For those of you who don't know what it did, it basically just stared at a bunch of stars in the sky and watched as they twinkled. Now, stars twinkle to us viewing them from Earth because of the atmosphere and the distortions and the turbulence in the atmosphere. But when you're in space... Stars don't twinkle because of air. They twinkle because every once in a while, if the alignment is just right, 
one of their planets passes in front of that star and dims just a little bit of that light. And in this way, we can get a statistical measure for the occurrence rate of different kinds of planets, big and small, going around their stars really close by and going around farther away, taking more time to complete each orbit. Kepler has just completely revolutionized planetary science. Because now we know, now we know, we really do know how many planets are out there. And it's greater than one per star. So it's really fascinating to me that, you know, Star Trek emerged in the 1960s before we knew about a single planet around another star. The writers on Star Trek simply assumed that there were, that around other stars there would be planets just like our solar system was built. And that there would be so many planets that there would be a new one to visit every single week. And Kepler has shown us that that's true. There really are that many strange new worlds out there. Now, the Dawn mission also came to an end. Both of these spacecraft essentially just ran out of fuel. They ran out of gas. And unfortunately, there are no gas stations in outer space. So... That's it. They're done. Kepler is just going to float on in its Earth-trailing orbit, and Dawn is going to continue circling Ceres. All right, so Dawn had two targets. Uh, the first was to Vesta, and the other was to Ceres, and these are two very large bodies in the asteroid belt, and it wanted to learn about the geology of these asteroids, the chemical makeup of these asteroids, the history of these asteroids, because asteroids are basically the leftover building blocks of planets. And if we understand those building blocks, then we can understand planets better. I won't belabor Dawn too much. If you want to learn more about it, go and head over to episode 44, titled Volcanologist, Not Volcanologist. That's my interview with Kayla Yakovino and David Williams at the Star Trek Las Vegas 2018 convention. David is a planetary geologist and is on the Dawn mission, so he told us a bunch about that during that episode, episode 44. All right, so Kepler gave us a universe full of planets. One day, humanity may step out into our cosmic shore and set foot for the first time on another planet. Star Trek predicts that this will happen within the next century or so. My guest today, Desonoka, will tell us about our conceptions of how that should happen. We're going to talk about colonialism in science fiction and how that might be a problematic way of viewing humanity's venture into outer space. We'll also talk about how we can possibly view our journey into outer space outside of the context of colonialism. And we'll also talk about our assumptions for a linear trajectory of progression in spacefaring civilizations. And we'll talk about how Vulcans are the Orientals of the Federation. And finally, what the Space Force means in the context of all of this discussion. Let's jump in. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, everyone. I'm sitting across from Desun Oka in beautiful Stanford, California. We're watching the sunset. There are people outside playing volleyball on basically a beach volleyball 
on an artificial beach. This place is just crazy. crazy. I do not understand. And there's a guy playing basketball, so you might hear some outdoor noises. Jason, this is actually my first podcast outdoors, so congratulations. You yes. have that honor now of having the first Strange New Worlds episode recorded outdoors. Hopefully the ambient noise is not too distracting for people. I think it offers a nice effect. Right. Right. And just the weather here, Northern California in the summer, beautiful time to be outside with the sun setting just behind those trees on Stanford University campus. Indeed. On a beautiful sunset also. Twilight vibes right now. I love it. And um, so, which made me think, there was this term, or this like quote that said that, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire because the empire like spanned the entire globe. Wherever one place was, where the sun was setting, it was rising in another place. So in a spacefaring civilization, since you're in space, the sun never sets. It's just there. So the sun never sets on your spacefaring empire. <laughs> the sun never sets because it's just there. It's just there. <laughs> it's just a ball of gas. It's the just, ball, there. just the ball of gas. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, man. So, yeah, we're going to talk about spacefaring civilizations on this podcast. And we're going to talk about how we're going to get there to being a spacefaring civilization. Because right now we're definitely not. We're just dipping our toes into the cosmos. And so how do we take humanity from where we are today to the United Federation of Planets? And what does our vision of the future have to say about our present? That's basically the theme of today's podcast. And to prepare for this, we read an article, scholarly paper called Visions of Human Futures in Space and SETI. SETI, of course, being the acronym that stands for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And this was authored by two people. One is Jason T. Wright, an astronomer at Penn State University and a visiting professor at UC Berkeley, and is the principal investigator for NASA's Nexus for Exoplanet System Science. His co-author is Michael P. Oman Reagan, who is an anthropologist at Memorial University in Canada. So this is a very unique collaboration between somebody who's in the physical sciences and somebody who is in the social sciences. And this paper, Visions of Human Futures in Space and SETI, mainly circles around the idea of unintended biases. So there are two of these that I want to highlight. The first is an unacknowledged feedback loop between science fiction and science. So science fiction is very much based in our own history, but the science fiction that everybody consumes, including scientists like myself, influences the types of activities that we perform. It influences the kinds of aliens and kinds of life and kinds of intelligence that we are looking for out in the cosmos because we have it ingrained in ourselves that we're going to find certain things based on the stories that we've been told and that we consume. And there's also a feedback loop between the stories that we tell science fiction-wise and, and how we as a species, as a civilization, reaches out into the stars. Again, this is based on our own history of exploration that we are most familiar with as a culture and that happened on our planet. And that influences how we actually tackle space exploration. So, Desun, I want to talk to you about science fiction and science and how history 
blends the two together. So, science fiction, according to this article, is less about how we actually envision the future and more about retelling our past and reflecting our present. For instance, in this paper, the authors suggest that we should try to not use the word colony when we talk about space exploration, especially human space exploration. We shouldn't use the word colony or colonize space because that invokes the expansion of European powers. In a very colonial framework, you kind of separate the explorers from the explored. And so can you tell me a little bit about colonialism and its relationship to the concept of the other? So yeah, I think colonialism is backed up by kind of this ideology of kind of righteousness or in the American sense, kind of manifest destiny or some sort of divine right. And that there's this like mandated, some mandate from the higher power like God, for instance, that justifies a certain group of people taking over usually land at the expense of the people who are living there. And so, you know, we see this in the case of U.S. expansion in North America with the Manifest Destiny ideology. We also see this in the case of Portuguese and Spanish expansion into the Americas, where they achieved ideological justification for their expansion into this new continent by validation from the Catholic Church. So we see, like, kind of colonialism is kind of backed up by sort of this, like, human interpretation of, like, divinity, you know, what's like a divine right. That's really interesting. So... For those people like me, whose last history class was very long ago, can you just remind us what Manifest Destiny was for the United States? Right. So in the case of the United States, it was developed in sometimes in like the early 1800s when the colonies were just starting to expand outwards into the Midwest and Western parts of this continent. And it was this ideology that American settlers, by virtue of you know, their enlightenedness. And this, this stem is kind of like a, a version of kind of enlightenment philosophy in which, like, American enlightenment, American virtue, which is based off of, like, European enlightenment, is uh, kind of by divine right entitled to the land of North America. And in doing so, they're going to take the land, but also cultivate it, civilize it, and turn it into a civilization. So this is this notion that this land was empty for the conquering and civilizing of the newly formed U.S., nation state. And so basically manifest destinies and ideology that backed colonialism. Now, in science fiction, we have the notion of colonizing yeah. space, mainly because many science fiction authors yeah. write as members of the Euro-American civilization, not as members of the entire human race. So they write being ingrained in a certain culture with a certain cultural history to it, which is that of perhaps manifest destiny in the Americas. And so, for instance, the paper raises the point that in 1962, when Arthur C. Clarke, the very famous science fiction author, wrote a collection of essays called Profiles of the Future, he talks about colonies on Mars, etc., across the cosmos, settled by humans, but specifically settled by human physicists 
chemical engineers, biologists, mm. and mathematicians. And the article points out that this is so unrealistic mm. because you can't build a society on the backs of just these intellectual elites. Mm. And in reality, there are many more important contributors to the rise of a colonial entity. Mm. And in our own history, if you reflect upon it, there are a lot of contributors that are overlooked by such authors as Arthur C. Clarke, such as indigenous people, people who were enslaved, immigrants, refugees. These are the results of inequality and injustice, of course, but nevertheless they played a role in colonialism in our own history. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think all nation states have mythologies that kind of provide this like ideological foundation to their existence and part of that mythology is the kind of like notion that it was built by amazing people it was built by the educated the enlightened the scientists and thinkers and engineers but nation state both the society and the economy and the political structure that like kind of supports nation states as you say is actually built upon those who didn't make it into the history books those who didn't make it into the mythology so for instance, like indigenous peoples who are already there in the land, slaves, immigrants, refugees, as you already said. And as this article already points out. Yeah, so, Einstein was a refugee. Yeah, right. Right? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, it's not necessarily the quote-unquote smart people that you brought over to initiate the colony. But like later yeah. on, people can really influence the development of the society from very unexpected places. Yeah, so when Arthur C. Clarke mentions that we're going to build a space civilization or space colony, that is like somehow different than the past and you know, but this time the space colony will be engineered and designed by the educated. It kind of begs the question like how is this possible without the exploitation of labor from slaves, indigenous people, refugees and immigrants? And for him, I think, like, this is applying sort of this nation-state mythology in the concept of the future of human civilization in space, but also forgetting what the people who actually, like, built or, like, made this mythology possible. So science fiction often imagines aliens progressing as humans do. So there is a clear spectrum of progress. So... We often have very primitive civilizations that one might encounter as you're exploring outer space. You might run into more advanced cultures that are technologically and ideologically maybe matching your own. And then, of course, superior cultures you might find also. And so there's a very linear trend to the progression of civilizations in science fiction. And this, the authors argue, is a reflection of the belief that there is an ideal culture which arises from the extrapolation of European culture as the pinnacle mm -hmm. of present-day human civilization. Any thoughts yeah. on that? So we talked about you know, this trajectory towards enlightenment, as you said, and I think like this trajectory kind of justifies the colonial project that kind of like makes up the, the justification for space exploration. And I think the problems with that is, you know, it assumes that like human progress lies in space. And because it lies in space, colonialism must go on. So like humanity doesn't progress if it doesn't perpetually colonize. And that in, if we don't colonize, then we stagnate. 
And so I think that the notion of like upward linear development is problematic because it assumes that humanity progresses only through colonialism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Desun, if we want to move away from the framework of colonialism or using the term colony or colonizing of outer space, what other ways of settling outer space is there for us to imagine for the future yeah, of humanity? Right. So, I, I think we even need to like challenge like concept of like settle, and why do we need to really settle space? And I think I, I drew this idea of space as not like a place to colonize, but as like a laboratory, mm. you know, a laboratory in which we conduct experiments and observe, and then that in itself like improves our life, the human life. Instead of you know viewing Mars as a place to colonize, why not view Mars as like a potential laboratory in which we can observe how life evolves and decays, how geologies evolve and decay, and how and kind of from what we learn from that, what kind of new biologies and uh, medicine and physics can we and geophysics can we kind of use to benefit our own life? Yeah, I think like the exploration of space doesn't have to be humans going out and like living in colony planets, but just actually humans conducting experiments in space and then reaping the benefits for all of humanity. I think that's a decolonial way of thinking about space. I think you're uh, a scientist at heart, Jason. I hope so. That's a really interesting perspective. You can view space as a place to learn, first mm. and foremost. And then as people go out there and try to use space to learn about the laws of physics and geology and biology, mm. etc., naturally they will start to live there but it's not like they're going there to settle or to colonize as their main purpose mm -hmm. but that is just a byproduct of our natural curiosity our drive to yeah, explore exactly and i think like you know as ironic as you know saying this about space i think space can actually be a mirror onto ourselves onto humanity onto the biology the geophysics the planetariness of human life and I think that's like the perfect way to view space and kind of a starting point to like really decolonize what we think of space mm -hmm. as. So this paper goes on to state that aliens in science fiction are often allegories for human relations. For instance, the scenarios of first contact with alien life or with intelligent alien life are often not very realistic scenarios of interstellar relations. And the first contact scenarios that we see in sci-fi definitely reflect the biases of our own society. For example, first contact scenarios in almost every single science fiction show involves white male characters as the ambassadors of Earth. Earth yeah. And we see this even in Star Trek. Zephram Cochran is the first human to ever shake hands with Vulcans. For some reason, Zephram Cochran was from Montana, Bozeman, Montana, and the Vulcans decided to land in Bozeman, Montana. And, and the Vulcans were white. And the Vulcans were white. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Where was the Tuvok Vulcan? Yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Anyway, um, so my biggest question for you tonight, Desen, is so in what ways does Star Trek very much fit into this narrow right. Eurocentric colonial mode that this paper talks yeah. about? And in what ways does Star Trek do it a little bit better and try to defy this mode? Yeah, so I think that that's a really interesting point to make because I think in science fiction everywhere, aliens are a substitute for people of color and indigenous people. 
you see that trope all the time. Like, is the spaceship this crew that visits a helpless planet of primitives that needs help from another invading force, or visits a planet that's like highly oppressive and has like backwards cultures and traditions? It's, it's a crew member, usually a human white male who falls in love with like a native alien woman. And on the other hand, you know, going back to what you said about the trajectory of human civilization, whenever a Star Trek crew meets like a higher civilized society, that society is portrayed in like a decadent way. Like it's this highly evolved society that's slow, bureaucratic, highly collective, but very advanced. And I think we see this in the Borg. A highly advanced civilization. That's the Borg. We see this in the Vulcans in Star Trek Enterprise. The Vulcans of highly enlightened but decadent, old and run down. We see this in the original series. The the or, the Organians, mm-hmm. like non-corporeal lifestyle uh, life forms, who are highly isolationist. We see this in Deep Space Nine. The wormhole aliens. I don't think even to some degree like the Bajorans. And I think like when Star Trek shows highly advanced civilizations. It shows them in a way that they're actually backwards. Interesting. Yeah, that they're actually backwards. They're decadent. They're, and, and I think one crucial point is that they're old. That they are old, and they need to be re-energized with a sense of exploration that only the Federation starship captains and crew has. So, where do you think that comes from? Why is Star Trek that way? So, what I think is actually it's in European encounters of older civilizations, and I think when European Empires expanded. You know, they they expanded into Americas, and they viewed the inhabitants of Americas as primitive. But they also encountered civilizations in Asia, ah, Middle East, India, South Asia, and Africa. And I think what these civilizations represents for European colonizers and explorers was ancient and wise civilizations, but decadent, backwards, and old. You see a very common trope in the 1800s, where European explorers viewed Asian and African, or some Africans actually, the ones that they didn't think of slaves, but some Asian and some African civilizations as more evolved than civilizations in the Americas, but kind of unenlightened or trapped in their old way. And I think this is kind of a predecessor to Orientalism.、Right? And I think part of Orientalism here is this simultaneous adoration or this awe. Of these old civilizations, but also viewing them as like inherently corruptible or backwards or old. That's fascinating.、Yeah. I never really thought about it that way. So it's interesting. So European explorers and colonizers and Orientalists thought of Asian and certain African civilizations as more enlightened than the Americas and the slaves that they brought over from West Africa, but not as enlightened as what Europe could be. Ooh. And that Europe eventually will overtake Asia, interesting, and civilizations in Asia and Africa. You know, so this reflects heavily in Star Trek Enterprise,、yep. right, with the Vulcans, absolutely, right, where humanity, Starfleet, they're the new kids on the block. They're making all sorts of mistakes. They don't know what they're doing. The Vulcans have a very established space agency. They know what the politics are、mm-hmm. in the Alpha Quadrant. They're very experienced. Paul's there as an advisor. She、mm-hmm. always has something to say about how they should be running their space missions, and yet Enterprise is portrayed as this beacon of hope, of aspirations for what could be. And、uh, of course, we know as 
astute Star Trek fans that that is the Federation, that humanity will somehow gain its central role in the entire geopolitical, or maybe I should call it cosmopolitical sphere of the Alpha Quadrant. Mm -hmm. And it will do so by usurping power or centralness from this old Vulcan way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think Vulcans in the Star Trek universe are coded as, I say this ironically, Orientals. Vulcans are the Orientals of (laughs) Star Trek. That kind of makes sense. A lot of the tropes about uh, Oriental peoples is that, you know, not very much emotion, (laughs) dark. They wear all robes, they meditate, Yeah. (laughs) they seek enlightenment. Bowl cuts. Bowl cuts. Oh there God. was definitely a phase in I, which absolutely. I had a yeah, bulk yeah, exactly. yeah, right? Bull cut Vulcan. Yeah. Robes, weird like hand signals and bowing. Um monks. Mm. No. So I think yeah, Vulcans are definitely like the Oriental stereo like trope of the Star Trek universe. More advanced than the Enterprise, but backwards and old. So are there any ways in which Star Trek actually breaks out of this mold that could be applied to so many science fiction shows and books and series etc is there is there a way that star trek actually transcends this or is it really just a part of all of this yeah i wonder i i don't really know i think for the most part i think star trek actually does fall into this trope and i think you know that's the nature of like the writers who write the show you know they come from like a certain historical and cultural context um, so yeah, I I don't really recall like a time when like Star Trek was like kind of subversive of what you know what you mentioned as the trajectory of civilization, this upward trajectory of civilization. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think maybe what Star Trek does, it, it's mentions about the corruptibility of civilization, such as like Section Thirty One. I think that's like a good subversion of the upward mobility teleology of you know civilization. Thanks for mentioning Section 31, Dayson, because that was such a big part of what we talked about last time when I visited Stanford. We spoke about the shadow that must always accompany the structure. So no matter how pure and wonderful the structure is, no matter how idyllic it may be, and I'm speaking about the Federation, there's always a shadow that it casts, and that is Section 31. And you blew my mind so many times that episode. As you know, I recently went to the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. And because I was so inspired by our discussion about Section 31, I brought you back a few things. (gasps) Yes, oh my gosh, yes! I was like, when I surprised you in my first podcast, except I'm being surprised. (laughs) Ah, it's a (laughs) book! So this is a book by my favorite Star Trek author, David Mack. Wow, okay. He has written several books oh, in, in the Section 31 theme. Yeah. yeah, it's got a beautiful cover with Dr. Julian Bashir, and you. it's called Section 31 Control. I recently read this book, and it absolutely blew my mind. This was like one of the most fantastic right. pieces of fiction that I've ever read, not just Star Trek, but fiction in general. Fiction general and yeah. it just, it, it, it tells the story of how Section 31 originated, and it really spoke to the same types of things that we were talking about last time about how you must have this shadow organization to hold up a structure Structure, yeah yeah yeah, absolutely because i think the metaphor and like the symbolism of shadow like contradictions can exist in shadows if they step outside the shadow into the light they just dissolve 
if you think of the light as the values, the public values of the Federation, Section 31 cannot coexist with that. So Section 31 can kind of exist within the shadow while it's upholding the very structure of the Federation itself. Yeah. yeah. So I hope you uh, enjoy this book. The bookmark is also from um, John Eaves, who is the designer of many starships throughout the Star Trek universe. And yes. so he was handing out those bookmarks there. That's the Enterprise E. He's also done so many starship designs for Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. And um, finally, Sun. Oh my gosh, what? Welcome to Section 31. Whoa! <laughs> I'm part of a shadow organization now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So for those of you on the podcast, I just slipped Asun his own black badge, which is honestly a conundrum to me about why Section 31 even needs its own Starfleet badge, because technically they're supposed to be in the shadows and not known to anybody. Right. But, um... It but doesn't even say Section 31, it just says Black Badge. It's just Black Badge, right? But um, but we know you, because Michael. of that extra scene on YouTube that yeah. uh, Section 31 is the Black Badge. Yeah. yeah. So, there you go, Jason. Thank you so much, Michael. Like, I'm... My facial expression's like freaking out. You can't see any of it, but I'm freaking out, and I love this. Anything else that you want to say about um, this uh, this paper that we read? Well, I think this relates to an article that you shared from The Atlantic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So um, while we're talking about the concept of space and its intersection with narrative and ideology, you shared this article from The Atlantic that had Mike Pence talking about the Space Force and how him talking about the Space Force was in a way that's like intertwined with narratives of divinity, God and righteousness and American manifest destiny in space pretty much i think this is also just a projection of our past histories and values into the future and mike pence is like using ideas and narratives of divine right and manifest destiny to justify america's exploration into space i think we have to be you know very cautious of this because like what these ideologies in the past have done to people was like pretty oppressive to indigenous peoples, to refugees, to immigrants, to slaves. And we have to be careful that we don't perpetuate that into space. Yeah, space is where, you know, I, I mentioned that it's like an experiment. We can see space as like an experiment, not just scientific experiments, but also ideological experiments. How does uh, space either support or challenge notions and ideologies of colonizations, which is very much land-based on Earth. And as we go into space, can we really take these ideologies that was very specific to the geography of Earth to the rest of the universe? I don't think so. Thank you so much for joining me and opening my mind again to a whole new dimension of viewing Star Trek and viewing our mission to reach out into the stars. Again, extraordinarily mind-blowing. And now I'm not so sure, you know, about the way things are going with the Space Force, with SpaceX, with a directive to go to Mars from governments on a fractured planet. I'm not sure if this is the best way of approaching it. But there is one thing for certain that you told me, which is that no matter what happens, once we become a spacefaring civilization... The sun will never set on us because the sun is just, just there. there. <laughs> exactly. All right, that concludes episode 51 of Strange New Worlds. 
a discussion with my friend, the historian, De Sonoka. That paper that we read, co-authored by an astrophysicist and an anthropologist, gives me hope that one day, maybe the opportunity will arise for me, a planetary scientist and astrobiologist, to collaborate with De Sun, a historian, on some kind of paper dealing with the crossroads of science and science fiction. Wouldn't that be something? If you enjoyed today's discussion, please give us a rating or a review. Until then, have fun watching Enterprise with new eyes. I know I certainly will. And remember that nothing that humans do, not even science and certainly not Star Trek, emerges in a vacuum. That is to say, everything that we make, that we think, that we do, is influenced by our culture. And this amazing insight is something that I continuously gain when I talk to friends like Desun. As Captain Lorca said, context is for kings. Have you seen Solo? I have. Okay. Oh my gosh. I liked it a lot. Good. It was good. Darth Vader appears. I mean, um, hey, sorry. That was, <laughs> hey, what? Oh, it's what? <laughs> That's a spoiler. That is not. It's been, totally, it's been five months. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen Solo yet. Wait, you haven't yet. seen Solo yet? I haven't yet? seen Solo. Okay. I'm wrong. Darth Vader does not appear. Okay. I some, made a mistake. I remember we were yeah, driving we were this game. and yeah. you're trying to get me to guess. Mm-hmm. And I made some pretty good guesses. You did. But now I know the answer. What? What is it? You just said it. Darth Vader appears. Oh, no, no, no. I made a mistake. That's, he doesn't appear. So it was Obi-Wan? Because that was like... That okay, was, I'm not saying anything. That was, you okay. gave me three chances okay, to what were the three? I, I said either Obi-Wan, Yoda, or Darth Vader. I'm going to give you five guesses. Take out Darth Vader. No, I'm going to give you four guesses, but take out Darth Vader. Okay, well, yeah. like... So what are your four guesses? I'll tell you if it's right. The droids, C-3PO, and R2-D2. Okay, okay, go on. Darth Vader. No, wait, I can't say Darth Vader. Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan. Okay, um, Yoda, and how about... Mm. Prequel. Prequel. It's from the prequels? Darth Maul? It's one of those four. It's one of those four? Yeah. Even without Darth Vader? Yeah, it's even without Darth Vader. Oh, shit. Damn. That's awesome. Yeah.